You're listening to In the Thick of It, a podcast from the HCM Society, where we interview experts in the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy field to broaden the awareness of new HCM studies and advancements. In today's episode, sports cardiologist Dr. Michael Ayers has the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Anjali Owens, medical director at the Center for Inherited Cardiac Disease and associate professor of cardiovascular medicine at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. The topic of discussion today is a critical one that impacts the world of cardiology and beyond, cardiac myosin inhibitors. This cutting edge area of research has the potential to revolutionize the way we approach cardiac diseases. So whether you're a medical professional, a sports enthusiast, or simply someone interested in the intersection of sports and cardiology, you're in for a treat. Dr. Ayers and Dr. Owens are here to share their insights, expertise, and passion for this groundbreaking field. Let's get in the thick of it. Here's Dr. Ayers and Dr. Owens. We always learn so much chatting with you, so we're really excited to ask some questions. With that, I'm just gonna hop right in. Sounds good. Help us understand what patients might benefit from a cardiac myosin inhibitor. Well, typically in our clinic, we've been following the data that's been published on Mavicamptin, the FDA-approved cardiac myosin inhibitor. And that's the data from the Pivotal Explorer trial that enrolled patients with symptomatic obstructive HCM, New York Heart Association class two and three. The vast majority of those patients, as you know, were functional class two. And then we also use data from the Valor HCM trial, another phase three trial of Mavicampton, which looked at the sicker group of patients, those who were actively considering and eligible for septal reduction therapy. The vast majority of those patients, as you know, or NYHA functional class three. So as we extrapolate this data into the real world, those are really the patient population that we're targeting in our clinic, symptomatic obstructive HCM, patients who are already on background therapies at maximally tolerated doses. Excellent. And so many of these patients have been living with their symptoms for so long, there can be a tendency to potentially underplay how symptomatic they are. You mentioned that the two things you're looking at is New York Heart Association class and gradient. What do you do when there's a dissociation between those two worlds, when you got a patient with a lot of gradient who's saying, I'm doing pretty well? Yeah, it's a wonderful question. And, you know, an, an issue that we run into all the time with our patients with HCM, um, we do a couple of things. One is during the patient's interview, every time they come to clinic, we get corroborating history from their significant other or caregiver or anyone that accompanies them to clinic. And as you know, oftentimes the patient is saying, I'm fine, I'm fine. And the spouse in the background is saying, no, they're not. So we always get um, information from the caregiver or the spouse to say, how, how is this patient doing really? And how does this compare to their functional status a year ago or even two years ago or five years ago? Have they lost some functional capacity or exercise tolerance over the years? The second thing that we use very frequently is objective functional testing. So exercise stress echo. So look at their exercise time, look at their exercise capacity objectively. And we do that over time. So we would do an exercise stress echo every couple of years, certainly um, more frequently if there's been a reported change in symptoms. But even in someone who's got severe obstruction but's reporting no major symptoms, we would get that additional 
objective exercise testing. And that sometimes helps us to really eliminate that discrepancy um, if it comes up. If you had to ballpark for me, what percent of your patients in your HCM clinic do you think have had a stress echo at some point in their care with you? At some point in their care? 99%. <laughs> I would say it's, it's rare that we don't try to put a patient on a treadmill. Most of them get some sort of exercise test at some point in their evaluation, whether it's a baseline or a follow-up, but usually patients get some form of exercise testing. We use the you know um, regular old stress echo for most patients. There is a subset of patients who also get a cardiopulmonary exercise test or a peak VO2. Um, and in some patients, we do a combination study, a stress echo CPAP. So you've now identified a patient that you think might benefit from a cardiac myosin inhibitor. Can you talk about two things for me? One, do you offer multiple therapies at once for that patient who's quote unquote failing negative inotropic therapy? And two, once they've decided on cardiac myosin inhibitor, can you walk me through the steps of what that looks like for the patient in your clinic? Yeah, sure, Mike. So first we start by giving them all the options. We really do set aside time to have an in-depth shared decision-making conversation. And during that uh, conversation, we offer them all of the options that we think would be realistic or potentially feasible for them. And that would include going up on their AV nodal blocker dose if there's still room to titrate. That might include a discussion of disopyramide depending on availability, um, you know, comorbidities profile that we anticipate for side effects, for example, if they have prostate disease or something else. And we talk about septal reduction therapy in those patients who are symptomatic enough to consider it. So we go through all of those options in addition to the option of cardiac myosin inhibitor. If they decide that they're going to move forward with the cardiac myosin inhibitor, then we really start to talk about logistics. And in that first visit, prior to signing them up, prior to doing the REMS, we really talk about what cardiac myosin inhibitor therapy entails in terms of follow-up, in terms of reporting of symptoms, in terms of reporting concomitant and new medications. So we really go in-depth with why the FDA has required a REMS program and what their responsibility will be, as well as what our responsibility will be. And we make sure that that's really a feasible approach for them, that they can come back for those six to seven echoes in the first year, that they have transportation to do so, that they're able to communicate with their primary care physician to let them know about this new medication. We really go through each step of the process. You had me smile a little bit there when you said disapyramide. I'm sure you don't remember this, but the very first patient I took care of as an intern in the cardiology unit was a patient of yours who was a new start of disapyramide. I, I still remember that day. Um, oh, Mike. Just, just so you know. Those um, were the days. <laughs> um, all right. So I'm a patient who's decided to start cardiac myosin inhibitor even after our conversation. As my gradient improves through time, what things are you looking for on the echo beside the gradient? And how are you managing my other medications like my beta blocker and my calcium channel blocker that might have been at relatively high doses before initiating this med? 
Yeah, it's a wonderful question and an area where I think we'll get more data in the coming years and we'll understand kind of what the pathways are for managing background therapy. Currently, I think it's more of an art than a science. So I'll give you my approach, but I think you'll find lots of variability um, between cardiologists. So typically what we do um, for my patients is they're on high dose calcium channel blocker, high doses of verapamil or diltiazem. I generally reduce the dose of calcium blocker just prior to starting the Mavicamptin. So, you know, when we're in that phase of getting approval, prior authorization, arranging for shipping in those couple of weeks, I may reduce the dose of calcium blocker, see how they tolerate it. And if they're fine on that lower dose, go ahead and start the Mavicamptin. For patients on metoprolol, I generally leave them at the dose. Sometimes I opt to reduce the dose a bit. Then I wait for usually 12 weeks until they reach a steady state. We've got the gradient under control. The other things we look for, of course, are the ejection fraction, um, the degree of SAM, mitral regurgitation, diastolic function, make sure that things are all moving in the right direction, and importantly, that the patient is feeling better and their symptoms are controlled. At that point, we may need some adjustment in blood pressure medication. We have seen patients as the LVOT obstruction is relieved that they become hypertensive or more hypertensive. So we may be doing some adjustment of their antihypertensive therapy if they have hypertension. So we generally try to do one thing at a time. And inevitably, they come to us and say, when can I get off of my beta blocker and or calcium blocker, but more often the beta blocker due to limiting side effects, as you know. Um, and so then we start to slowly down titrate again, as long as the symptoms are improved, the gradient is gone, they're at a steady state, then we would slowly reduce the background therapy. That's been our approach. How about you? Well, in full confession, given that most of my learning about HCM came from you and Dr. Day, I do something very similarly. You won't be, you won't be surprised to hear. Excellent. <laughs> I, not a day goes by an HCM clinic when I don't ask myself, what would Anjali do? So just oh, so you know, boy. again. <laughs> so you mentioned following the ejection fraction for these patients. One of the things that's sort of cognitively difficult for these patients is they'll feel so much better with alleviation of gradient, but I'm sure you've had a handful of patients that start to really skirt into an ejection fraction of the high 40s, low 50s. What are you doing for your patient who's got an EF, we'll just make it right at 49, but the gradient's gone and they feel great. And how are you having that conversation with the patient about the meaning or absence of meaning about systolic dysfunction in those instances? Right. Wonderful question. So as you know from the trial data, many patients with a transient drop in ejection fraction to less than 50% on a CMI, many of them are asymptomatic. Just as you said, it's picked up by that safety echo, but they're feeling otherwise fine. Their gradient is gone. So they do have a hard time wrapping their head around the concept at times. Just as they have difficulty wrapping their head around the concept of down titration of dose at week four, or week eight when they're feeling very well and the gradient is gone. So it's the similar conversation that we have. And I think a lot of it is really predicated on the original discussion that you have with the patient as you're signing them up for the REMS protocol and to use Mavicamptin. And it's during that initial conversation where we say this is a novel mechanism of action. Here's how the drug works. And as a result of that, you may reach a stage where you're 
hypocontractile. And we are going to temporarily stop and then restart at a lower dose should that occur. And so I think setting expectations so that patients are not disappointed and it doesn't seem like it's coming out of the blue is important. And so that's what I say. We've reached that point where your ejection fraction is a little bit low. It's not causing you heart failure. You're feeling well otherwise. We are going to temporarily hold and then restart after a follow-up echo shows uh, recovery of the ejection fraction to above 50. Now, we do have many patients um, who are living in that kind of low to mid-50 range, and they feel very well, and we're not doing anything for them. We're continuing their dose of mavicamptin. But if they drop transiently below, um, then we are temporarily holding. As you know, this often happens in the setting of paroxysmal AFib. So we're very careful to tell our patients when they're starting mavicamptin, we want to know if you go into AFib. Don't sit at home for weeks in AFib and not let anybody know. Call us and tell us. And we'll make, you know, a moves to get you back into sinus rhythm um, if the paroxysm hasn't gone away on its own. Um, and that puts them at less risk, I think, to drop the EF in that setting. And ballpark, how many patients have you seen at this point as a percentile, maybe, who have dropped their ejection fraction and required either cessation of the drug entirely or a pause? Um, very few. So I've seen more in our clinical trial population. Um, because we've been following those patients for now four plus years uh, from the Explorer cohort um, and from the long-term extension of the Valor trial. We've seen a couple of, you know, handful of patients from the clinical trial setting. In our commercial population that has been started on Mavicamptin um, since FDA approval, um, it's been about two patients, uh, and that's out of Oh, close to 90 or 100. So it's below 5%, probably around 2%, if I had to guess. How about you? We've, we've got about 40 to 50 people on drug right now as a ballpark, and we had two drop. One was in the setting of a hospitalization for heart failure that was actually related to the tricuspid valve going wonky, nothing to do with the HCM. And the second one was, as you nailed, a patient who had some breakthrough of atrial fibrillation and dropped the ejection fraction in that setting and is requiring some more aggressive care with our electrophysiology team to try and manage that. Yeah, I think that's been pretty typical. Um, we, of course, always warn patients that a, a serious intercurrent illness that's non-cardiac uh, may also be a time where they may be particularly vulnerable. And again, this is, you know, based off of what we've seen in some of the clinical trial population. So we do warn the patients if you have a serious infection, any other serious medical illness that they should let us know so we can be vigilant about potentially monitoring the EFR closely or temporarily holding drug if we need to. Do you think there will be a role, not to get too far off the, the beaten path, for a reversal agent at some point in patients as we get more and more patients on drug? It's an interesting concept. I think, you know, at least in the preclinical um, studies, that the effect of the cardiac myosin inhibitors could be overcome by inotropes for the most part. And so I think if you really have someone who gets into trouble and is clinically in, in shock, cardiogenic shock or something like that, um, then you can probably use inotropes to get over a lot of the effect um, if it's a, a case like a, a massive overdose of a CMI, then, then perhaps there would be a role um, for a reversal agent. God forbid, hopefully that doesn't happen, but it, it's always a possibility. Um, so, I'm, so I'm not sure if we'll need a reversal agent. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, 
there was there's some case reports coming out of Boston, I believe, about some patients peri transplant who had stopped meds pretty pretty well before their transplant and then had kind of an abrupt drop in ejection fraction post transplant that was maybe related, maybe not. We know how rocky it can be coming out of transplant. Um, I think they did get a compassionate use in that instance. I don't know all the details of the case, but it certainly made me think or as we get more and more patients on drug, what happens when they come in with, say, a run-of-the-mill heart attack? Are we going to need some way to reverse this medication? And so I, I was selfishly using this time to pick your brain about where the future of that was headed. Yeah, no, certainly, you know, transplant is, is a tough one. And I, I would strongly suggest that anyone being listed for transplant is taken off of a cardiac myosin inhibitor. I think that those two do not mix well. Um, so certainly that would be the case. You know, someone with a big um, acute myocardial infarction, harder to know what we'll do in that setting. I mean, certainly that will probably occur with enough people on these drugs and we'll have to know if inotropes or temporary MCS is enough. Um, I think down the pike in, in you know, preclinical studies and certainly with next generation CMIs with a shorter half-life like afficantin, that could be a potential benefit. Um, for getting off of the drug quickly if you need to, that the half-life is a bit shorter. So there may be other um, alternatives that may come up that would help with that issue. Similar to the drop in ejection fraction, another way that you can kind of fail, to use that word loosely, a cardiac myosin inhibitor is to have an ongoing gradient despite therapy. How often are you seeing that? And are there any features that, in your mind, predict that might happen? Maybe it's elongation of the anterior leaflet, more of a mid-cavitary gradient. Is there anything you're seeing that gives you a clue that this patient might not fly on just cardiac myosin inhibitor? Yeah, what I've seen so far is mainly anatomy, just as you alluded to. Very long abnormal mitral valves where it's more than just um, hyperdynamic LV function that's contributing to the LVOT obstruction. And there's really a mechanical anatomic reason. Um, those patients may not respond as well, at least the few that we've seen. They are options, of course, for surgery and may opt to do so if they don't feel better and their gradient is still present. We have seen in a couple of those patients that despite still having obstruction in the severe range by gradients, that they feel better and their nt p has come down. And so in a couple of those patients, they have opted to consider uh, continue the CMI and not pursue surgery. But I think patients should know that if their obstruction is still present, still severe, and they still have symptoms, that they really should be pivoted over to surgery um, with if their gradient isn't resolving. The second group of patients, and again, it's small, but a bit notable, are, are very large men. And I wonder if that may be due to dosing um, and, you know, kind of upper limits of dosing. I it's anecdotal and it's a couple of patients, but they tend to be large men. And so I wonder if there may be an effect there. Um, hopefully we'll get more data as the drug is expanded to more real world populations where the BMI may be higher, comorbidities may exist that may affect the efficacy of the drug. That's very interesting you say that. We have one or two that still have significant residual gradient. And I had unified them in my head as mitral anomalies, as you had had said, both of them very long anterior leaflets, a little bit of apical displacement, more than what you're used to seeing. But now that you say that, they both are 
higher BMI men. So it raises the question, do they need a bigger dose? Very interesting. Yeah, and I think, you know, certainly within the um, FDA requirements now, this early after approval, I, I am not suggesting in any way that we go above the recommended dosing limits. But as time goes on and we get more experience, you know, perhaps there would be a role for doing off-label treatment. But at this point, I would say no, you know, stick with what the FDA has, has approved and the, for safety reasons to do that. There's also the metabolizer status that may play a role. Um, so, you know, if you have a, a fast metabolizer who happens to also have a BMI, like perhaps there's a small segment of people that that's just not the right dose for them. But um, we're not checking PK values, as you know, that's not mandated by the FDA. And so uh, in some of those real world patients, we just don't know what their drug concentration is and what their drug exposure is. There have been some whispers that I've heard about increased rates of atrial fibrillation in this population after starting med. Do you think there's any truth to that? Have you experienced that? Do you think we just need more data at this point? How are you How are you viewing that situation? I think the jury's out. I'm not sure um, what's going to happen with the AFib data and the paroxysms of AFib in particular. Um, I, I certainly think we need more data with, with that regard, longer term data um, and good reporting because oftentimes patients will have a paroxysm of AFib and not really mention it, not really think it's that big a deal as long as it resolves. Um, but that is data that may be harder to capture. Um, hopefully the Discover Registry or you know, real world registries will be able to get some of that information. Um, we're, of course, instructing our patients to let us know if they have more AFib, um, but I'm not certain, you know, and then when you look at the longer term data, for example, the, the MRI and echo studies, we're certainly seeing an improvement in left atrial volume index. So one would think that that would lead perhaps to decreased AFib, but if we're paradoxically seeing some increase in arrhythmia, I think it's something to take note of and certainly something to follow in the patients that have it um, to see if uh, a trigger or some other interaction can be identified. All right, I have three crystal balls questions to end here. We'll see how, see how much you're willing to bite off. Oh boy. My first question is, is this a disease-modifying agent? Should we as cardiologists be calling this a DMARD at this point or not enough data? I think we need a bit more data. So, you know, it's, it's, it's um, tantalizing to bite on that one and say it's disease-modifying. But as you know, I trained as a heart failure physician, and so I really would like to see some longer-term outcomes data. This is, of course, hard to get in an HCM population, um, but I do think we need a bit more data before we're willing to say this is a disease-modifying drug. I think the remodeling is notable, um, and it certainly gives us pause to say that hopefully this will be a disease modifying drug, but I don't think I would say that just yet. Um, the other thing that's in my mind is I don't know whether or not patients will need the same dose of CMI long term that they need up front, particularly in the obstructed population, to get resolution of obstruction. After that point, when patients are on four or five years, you know, I don't know if maybe perhaps we need to reduce the dose to more of a maintenance dose. I think we certainly need more data with regard to what to do with these drugs longer term. 
we'll get a lot of good data from the ongoing phase three trials in non-obstructive HCM. That might inform us more about what the long-term effects of the drug are going to be in that population. Um, so I would still stop short of calling them disease-modifying. I would say potentially disease-modifying. Yeah, that's it's very exciting to think about some of the new opportunities for our patients that have been opened up. Say a patient with suboptimal coronary anatomy for alcohol ablation, getting a, a pretty good response from CMI, and maybe now you think about two therapies at once, right? Rather than a this or that, a little bit of both. You, you see a number of different scenarios where you might have multiple therapies being utilized for our patients. Most definitely. And I think another population um, where, you know, dual SRT followed by CMI might be beneficial are the patients who have, um, you know, very severe symptomatic obstruction. They undergo adequate septal myectomy, but then end up with diastolic heart failure and a very, you know, stiff and thick ventricle that has normal systolic function, but nonetheless, their NT-PRO is still elevated. They still have severe symptoms. That's another population that I think um, the CMIs may be very useful. As you know, they affect all of the myocardium. So, you know, not just the part that was cut out by the surgeon, but the whole myocardium is being affected by the drug. And I think those patients may benefit significantly. We'll get more data, of course, from, um, from Odyssey and Acacia for that population. You know, you, you read into my crystal ball before I even got to the question, and that is, what are you looking for in the non-obstructive trial, and what do you think might happen? I know you're partially handcuffed, both, <laughs> both as a PI and as a heart failure physician who loves her data, but what do you think we're going to see? Yeah, I think what we'll see is that non-obstructive HCM is much more heterogeneous than obstructive HCM. So I think that we need better phenotyping to allow for subgroups of non-obstructive HCM that we understand more deeply than we currently do. And there are some patients with non-obstructive HCM who have accumulated significant fibrosis, their ejection fraction is already on the low end, they have more congestive symptoms, and maybe even borderline cardiac output. And as you know, I'm a fan of the right heart cat, so I think we can get hemodynamic data to help us and those patients may benefit more from SGLT2 inhibitor and, you know, more going towards the, the HEFREF route of medical therapy, um, whereas other patients with non-obstructive HCM still have quite a hyperdynamic LVEF in the mid-70s, you know, big left atria, high filling pressures. Um, and those patients, I think, will benefit from the cardiac myosin inhibitors. But I think it's a lot more difficult to pick out who's gonna benefit with non-obstructive HCM. The other thing we have to consider in that population is the high rate of comorbidities in some of those patients, and um, including obesity and you know, other medical comorbidities that may affect their response and the efficacy of CMIs. Um, and we see that a little bit in our obstructive population in the real world now that we are treating patients with higher BMIs or other medical issues that may affect their exercise tolerance. And I think that will be amplified in the non-obstructive population. So I think we have to be careful, um, particularly with enrolling for the clinical trials, um, to see which, which populations may benefit. All right. 
Last question. I could do this all day with you. I hope you know that the clarity of your explanations lives in my head relatively rent-free all the time in clinic. <laughs> but I will ask just one more question of you, and that is, between cardiac myosin inhibitors, athacamptin, possibly bringing more competition to the market, the non-obstructive trial coming down the pipeline, more and more patients feeling better, the genetic trials that are rolling out, what are you most excited about in the HCM sphere right now? Well, that's a tough one. That is a tough one. Um, well, you know, one thing you didn't mention, there are some uh, agents in preclinical evaluation that will be uh, hopefully coming to phase one first in human that actually have more of a lucitropic effect and less effect on systolic function. And I'll leave that as a cliffhanger, but I'm pretty excited about hearing more about those agents. All right, excellent answer. Thank you for answering all my texts about patients when I need it, and thank you for all the training and for your time. I really love talking to you. Oh, you're very welcome, Mike. You're too sweet. Thanks again. That was Dr. Michael Ayers and Dr. Anjali Owens. For more information on this study, visit hcmsociety.org slash podcast. This episode was edited and produced by EarFluence. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon on In the Thick of It.